0: Hi everyone, just to let you know, uh, we'll start the presentation in about one minute. We're just waiting for people to get in and get settled. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi everyone, we'll start the presentation in about 30 seconds. We're still waiting for everyone to get in and get settled. Thank you once again for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, Optimizing Your Construction Safety Program, Cornerstones for Creating a Hazard-Free Job Site, sponsored by J.J. Keller. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health, and I'm moderating today's, today's event. First, thank you so much for joining us, and before we get started, there are a few housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise product or publication does not mean the Council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speaker. If you have a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and press the Send button. We welcome your questions at any time during today's event. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We might not get to every question, but the good news is unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Also after this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. Just let you know this webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com events, or you may also receive a link in our post-event email. With that, let's introduce our speakers. With us today are Reed Chisti and Mark Stromi. Ray joined JJ Keller in 2017 as a workplace safety editor. He has 15 years of EHS experience in a variety of industries. Among those are engineering, procurement, and construction projects, railway, fossil fuel power plants, gas distribution, electrical transmission, and retail. Mark is a senior editor and develops content for various J.J. Keller publications, specializing in OSHA construction and general industry regulations. His areas of expertise include workplace violence, electrical safety, fall protection, forklift compliance, walking working surfaces, and aerial and scissor lifts. Again, we thank you all for tuning in to this presentation. Ray, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away.
1: All right. Terrific. Thank you very much. And welcome, everybody. Uh, Today's webcast is presented by JJ Keller's Safety Management Suite. Finally, a safety solution that works just as hard as you do. The Safety Management Suite streamlines compliance at every level of your business, making it easy to develop, implement, and maintain an industry-specific safety program. And because your success is our priority, today's attendees will be offered complimentary access to our compliance tools and resources in the Safety Management Suite. And on our behalf of our sponsor, J.J. Keller Safety Management Suite, thank you again for joining us. All right. So we'll be talking about, again, uh, the focus of today's webcast is certainly optimizing uh, your construction safety program. Again, a big welcome to everybody. Safety on the construction job site doesn't happen by accident. And as an employer, you're gonna be responsible for creating a hazard-free job site. Um, So your workers don't get hurt and you have the right program in place to keep them protected. But keep in mind, uh, your workers' personal safety must start with you. And we'll be giving you guys good tips and guidance so that way you can do that. Now, remember that safety is a value, okay? And I tell folks that's gonna be something that you gotta do day in and day out without change. And I've always said that safety, scheduling, and productivity can coexist. It's very possible. Um, If workers work safely, it prevents things like incidents, accidents, and shutdowns from happening. And those are all things that can certainly impact your schedule and productivity. So you need to be aware of the potential hazards at your job site. Um, You need to understand how to take certain actions to avoid certain hazards or reduce risk exposure or eliminate them and how to report any hazards or unsafe conditions so that way they can get addressed. You'll be learning how to optimize your construction safety program with Mark here, uh, Mark and I here today in today's webcast. Um, I like to start off uh, with a personal story, uh, a habit, I've been in the business for a while typically when I started off my safety presentations I usually like to start off with a a little personal story. Um, so once upon a time, I was a uh, police officer. this was many moons ago. Um, I had just uh, completed the police academy, and I was uh, you know on the streets as a police officer, as a rookie uh, rookie police officer, and I had gotten a call one day to go to a job site where a worker had fell and died um you know, I, my responsibility was to notify the next of kin. And um, I was new to being a police officer, really didn't know what that meant, um, but I knew that I had to go and visit with um, this worker's family. Um, by the time I got to the worker's home, it was around the evening time, um, perhaps maybe the, around the same time that he would have gotten home for supper. Um, and I can still remember uh, to this day, knocking on the door, in hearing his kids uh, yell as they're running to the door, daddy's home. And, you know, that has really st- uh, stuck with me over the last couple decades in my safety career. I can still hear their voice. And I had to tell his wife that, you know, your husband wasn't coming home today. And it was certainly one of the hardest days of my career. Um, again, I can still hear those kids talking, yelling, daddy. Um and we need to remember to personalize safety. It's, it's kind of been the creed in the construction safety world since I've been in the business. Um, we have to personalize the safety message. Uh, a tradesperson once memorialized it to me. I thought he said it well, that we need to be each other's brothers and sisters keeper. And it was really just trying to say we need to look out for each other. And So as we go through today's webcast, I encourage you to look for ways to personalize your safety message in your workplace, um, other than it just being a job site requirement. Um, And with that, let's get into um, some more mechanics of today's agenda. So here's a little bit more about what we're going to be discussing with you here today. Um, Certainly cornerstones of construction safety Here, Mark's going to get into OSHA's Focus 4 and what that's all about and give you some good guidance and tips on how to apply that um, on your job sites. We'll be covering need-to-know construction safety topics, and really here we're going to begin painting a picture of what the typical life um, looks like on a construction job site and go over some of the main safety issues that you should expect. Um, We're gonna demystify today's construction industrial hygiene issues. I think this is a pretty common issue um, across the industry. Um, These are gonna be things like sampling and validating your respiratory protection assessment. Um, We're gonna talk about environmental stewardship at your construction job site. And this is stuff really like being a good neighbor, right? Um, You may have things like protected wetlands. You may have dust monitoring requirements. Um, So we'll be touching on that. And then uh, towards the end of today's webcast, we'll be talking about personal safety for construction workers. And again, this is where uh, we'll be talking about things like wellness program, PPE, giving you some pro tips that you could take back to uh, use at your construction safety program. Um, Remember to send us your questions throughout today's webcast. We are gonna reserve time at the end uh, to review your questions and give you some expert advice. Um, And with that, let's carry forward. So um, again, cornerstones of um, construction safety. In this section here, we'll be covering OSHA, the types of construction, typical day, and certain hazards that you really should be focusing in on. Um, So I thought this would be a good place to start, certainly with OSHA. Um, OSHA's regulations do define construction work as construction alterations, repairs, and this can include things like painting and decorating. I don't think a lot of folks remember or realize that painting and decorating are also encapsulated with construction work. Um, Section 191012A further provides that um, OSHA's construction industry standards do apply to every employment in place of employment of every employee engaged in construction work. So construction work is not just limited to new construction. Um, Remember that it can include things like repair of existing facilities, um, certainly the replacement of structures, or even their their basic components. So just to maybe highlight an example, um, you know, the replacement of one utility pole with a new pole, um, identical pole would be maintenance. However, if it was replaced with some sort of newly improved pole or equipment, then we would be on the construction side of the fence. Um, Whether the work is performed in-house or or outside by your contractor or by you is not really a deciding factor of whether it's construction, it's really the type of work that's occurring itself. Um, I also like to um, give um, our audience just a little update on what's happening in the OSHA world in terms of um, regulatory compliance, new things that are coming down the pike. Um, We saw back in June 28th um, of last year, OSHA gave notice about um, an advance notice to propose rulemaking, and this was really centered around um, updating the general and construction industry standards around lead. And OSHA was looking to focus in on uh, blood lead level triggers, medical removal protection, seeing that um, were adjustments necessary based on where the industry is trending, uh, medical surveillance provisions and triggers that are associated, permissible exposure limits, and some of the ancillary provisions, things like protective equipment, housekeeping, hygiene. So this, um, you know, the rulemaking activity centered around lead is certainly on the horizon where we watch that very closely. Some other things um, that were, that have come down the pike, um, you know, we saw in 2019, the certification Um, of uh, our our crane operators. Um, We saw an enforcement policy for welding, cutting and heating um, in confined spaces also come out in 2019. Um, There was also policies and guidance for evaluating uh, your crane operators. And so it's been a while. Um, This lead standard is really the new kid on the block. And I encourage you if you do have lead activities occurring in your workplace or maybe contractors that are working with lead to keep an eye on that. So as promised, um, a little bit more in depth, um, just the types of construction that you would find in this industry. From a high level, um, certainly building construction by general contractors. So when you have your construction job sites, you're gonna have a general contractor who has really the ultimate responsibility for the project. They're typically contracted to um, the owner. And we could be doing things like uh, building a single-family home, uh, maybe in a residential setting, maybe it's a condo or an apartment, could be non-residential. This is where I've spent the bulk of my uh, safety career um, is in heavy industry. So maybe it's an industrial site, a warehouse, a commercial building, that kind of thing. Um, The next category is heavy construction, again, where I've spent uh, a great deal of time in the safety business. And Um, These are other types of buildings, Um, you know, certainly by general contractors. Maybe you have specialty trade contractors involved. And these could be things like highways, pipelines, communication and power lines, utilities. Maybe it's a sewer or water main. Um, But these are your heavy construction projects. Um, And the third category are going to be your specialty trade contractors. And this could be things like Uh, Maybe we're bridge painting. Maybe we have a plumbing company, heating and air conditioning, electrical, masonry, carpentry, even. So these would be your really your third big um, type of construction that's occurring. And again, I'd like to paint that picture, especially for folks that are new to the industry, so they can uh, consider really this construction spans a a great deal of industry, sub industry within construction. So here's I'd like to further paint a little picture about the typical day, um, you know, in the life of your average construction job site. And so, you know, we're doing things like getting permits and and certain approvals. And the permitting process sometimes, depending upon the size of your project, could be years in advance. And so, you know, a construction company could be um, involved in the uh, the process, years in advance, months in advance of being um, of even the first activity occurring or mobilizing on the project. Um, you know the people power curve. um typically, when we start off our projects, we have just the initial people to uh, mobilize office trailers or mobilize tools and equipment, materials, and then we kind of surge upward with our our, our people power curve um, and then towards the end of the project. Uh, we ramped back out. There's all sorts of schedules and budgeting meetings that are going on. So lots of activity. Um, we know that construction jobs are very active. They're physically demanding. You know, I could remember the long hours, extended periods, uh, being away from home. You know, you're often exposed to some sort of inclement weather. Uh, we're moving around heavy materials. We're bending, we're reaching, we're climbing, lots of repetitive work could be vibration from hand tools or power equipment, um, even working from heights or in confined spaces. And these are some of the things that Mark and I will be discussing with you uh, to be on the lookout for. Um, Work-life, I tell folks this, work-life balance is extremely essential. Um, We'll be talking about uh, worker wellness and certainly work-life balance fits perfectly, I think, in this topic. Um, again, most workers are going to be away from their family, um, especially workers that are called boomers. I was, uh, I was a boomer myself, uh, spent most of my career out on the road. Um, I was fortunate that my family could travel with me, um, but uh, you have a lot of construction workers that are away from home for extended periods, away from family, missing the holidays and the birthdays. And so that's something to factor into your safety program in terms of worker wellness. Um, Back in the day, I could certainly remember the tough life, the 80 80 hours a week, stacking the overtime and double time, uh, and again, trying to run home and and have that work-life balance. So that paints just that picture of the typical um, stressors and typical day in the life of your construction worker. So um, just to put on a high level, some things that we want you to focus in on as we go through today's presentation, certainly hazards and risks, right? Um, that you're gonna encounter on on your construction job site. So generally, as I mentioned, the work is gonna be demanding, it's gonna be dangerous. And our construction workers are facing a whole caveat of different risks and hazards. They could be in high places. So maybe we're working at an elevated surface on a rooftop, scaffolding, ladders, mezzanines. Maybe we're erecting structural steel um, or other high structures. So definitely working at places of height Uh, We could be exposed to inclement weather, uh, maybe extreme heat or cold, could be raining, snowing, maybe there's high winds. Um, You know, certainly work sites are typically noisy, lots of dust, especially if you're excavating, Uh, could be wet, muddy, um, depending upon the situation. Um, Lots of heavy equipment, right? You could have aerial lifts, you could have forklifts, bulldozers, backhoes, a whole myriad of different types of heavy equipment running around your job site that your workers have to be mindful of. Um, different types of work zones. Um, so we could be on a busy highway, we could be on a road. Um, you know, I could remember uh, when I was a field safety manager, how frustrated the admin used to get at, hey, this foreman is not, is not, I can't get a hold of them. And they're not returning my phone call or picking up my phone call. And typically it was the foreman who was standing in the right of way where they were trying to um, you know, uh, juggle the work at hand and then avoid um, the traffic that was coming by at 55 miles an hour. We wouldn't want them to be answering the phone. Um, and then working around maybe utilities, electrical wiring, other types of systems. And so uh, I like to paint that picture again and it kind of sets the tone for the different types of hazards that Mark and I are really gonna be talking about. Um, I think a great way to start this conversation off specifically is getting into the focus four, uh, which Mark is going to do here now.
2: All right, Ray. Thank you. And again, thank everybody for joining us. I know we're all super busy, but uh, this this need to know construction safety topics area, especially the focus four hazards, that's one of my favorites. Uh, I think OSHA did a really good job on this whole area. Now, The interesting thing here is this focus for hazard categories, you can see them on the screen. They account for more than half of all fatalities that occur on construction sites. Fall hazards, electrocution struck by and caught in or between. Uh, It's interesting to note that OSHA requires construction companies to actually have a accident prevention program. Now that is found at 1926.20 B one and two. And again, they call for a accident prevention program. Now, it's my understanding they don't have to be in writing, but what I really find interesting is that these two paragraphs were cited over 3,000 times in calendar years 2021 and 2022. So that to me shows, number one, OSHA is actually looking for this. And of course, if it's in writing, we uh, always like that because then we have proof that we are actually doing it. Another important bit of information for this concept is that OSHA has what is called a Focus Inspection Initiative. This is where the compliance officer <clears throat> comes onto your site, heaven forbid, and asks to see your safety and health program. And they want to see it because they want to figure out if it meets the requirements at 19 and whether it's effective. So if it is, the inspector won't inspect the whole site, thank God, just a representative portion of it. And he or she will limit the scope to just four things. You guessed it, the focus for fall struck by caught in or between and electrical shock. So that's another reason to have this uh, in writing. Now, if you don't have a safety program or they look at it and they can figure out it's it's not very effective, all of a sudden that shorter visit, that shorter inspection is gonna turn into a comprehensive OSHA inspection, meaning they're gonna be all over your job site rather than just looking at these focus for hazards. We're gonna start out with falls. Uh, I think as, as my co-presenter Ray said, you know, that's a very common um, hazard because we're working at heights. uh, We're working around excavations that we could fall into, fall off buildings, fall off scaffolding, fall out of aerial lifts. Uh, And, you know, most work sites have these. And that means most workers are of course exposed on a daily basis. The interesting thing here is falls uh, and fatalities from elevation continue to be a leading cause of death for the construction industry. Of 986 construction fatalities recorded in 2021 per the BLS data, 378 of those were fall related. So a huge portion of it. And not only that, OSHA has a national stand down every year, it's the national stand down to prevent falls in construction Uh, They do this because it raises fall hazard awareness across the country. Uh, They want to stop falls and injuries. And this year, just for your information, if you're going to get involved, it's May 1 through 5, so for 2023. Now, getting back to your job site, any walking or working surface can be a potential fall hazard. So, let's just talk about a couple thresholds here. So, in general industry, OSHA requires fall protection at four feet, So, uh, and in construction it's six feet. They, it's different. So some options that you have for protecting your workers are what I like to call passive systems. These are preferred, uh, like guardrails, or you're gonna use a safety net. How about a personal fall arrest setup? Maybe you're gonna use a positioning de- device or you're gonna have a travel restraint system set up. Now these are passive because they don't really require the employee to do anything other than to know what they're for and how to work around them. Another way you can prevent falls is to use things like administrative controls. This would be things like designated area, you're gonna put up a warning line, Uh, you're gonna employ a safety monitor or monitors. The thing with these controls is they require the employer and or the worker to do something. Now, this could include training uh, workers to understand not to cross warning lines and to obey the safety monitors. So they have to respond uh, to something. Uh, Now, when we we already said six feet in construction is a threshold, when we talk about scaffolding, it's 10 feet. Uh, And that's typically protected with a guardrail, okay? Or a personal fall arrest system if the guardrails are taken down. When we get into steel erection at 1926.760, there's all sorts of variations on fall protection in in that. So if you're interested, go take a look at that. But regardless of uh, fall distance, when your employees are working over dangerous equipment or machinery, no matter what the distance they have to be protected, okay? And then, interesting enough, uh, OSHA has a requirement at 1926-502-D20 to provide for prompt rescue of employees if they fall and they're wearing a harness uh, or they have to be able to rescue themselves. So why do they have that? Because there's the issue of suspension trauma. So if if a worker falls they're wearing a harness and they're suspended in the air, there's a certain amount of time that is key to get them down and rescued or allow them to self-rescue. That's typically 15 minutes uh, for a healthy individual and you're gonna otherwise you're gonna have, complications like blood clots. And you know, if you've got employees that are suspended um, and they have medical conditions like heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, you're definitely gonna wanna get them down before that. So you do need to have um, a rescue plan. If you're interested in accessing resources on fall hazards type fall protection in the safety management suites topic index, You're going to find some regulations, checklists, training material, news articles, and also importantly, plans and policies. So if you're not already using safety management suite and would like complimentary access, let us know by selecting your interests on the poll. And then, of course, as a thank you, uh, we'll email you a copy of our OSHA top 10 violations white paper now this white paper takes a close look at the top 10 most frequently cited standards across all industries but importantly five of the 10 standards fall under construction which is very very typical all right moving on to caught in or between hazards uh now this the this is kind of confusing because sometimes caught in or between looks like a struck bite, but I'm going to let you guys know the difference. So the key factor in making a determination between a caught event and a struck event is whether the impact of the object alone caused the injury. So when the impact alone causes the injury, that's struck. When the injury is created um, more as a result of a crushing injury between objects, then you're going to record that as a caught. So what would some things be that we would classify as a caught in or between? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is a trench cave-in. Um, when I was in college, I worked construction part-time during the summer, and I w- worked a lot of flat work, uh, concrete work, I worked residential roofing, which I absolutely hated because I'm afraid of heights, but I worked in some trenches and I never really felt really comfortable in there. But um, So why would a trench cave-in be so deadly? Because soil is extremely heavy, 80 to 100 pounds per cubic foot. So when a trench collapses onto a worker, uh, you're going to have many, maybe tons of, of Soil hitting this person, uh, trapping them. So, you know, the hazards that cause the most injuries and worse are things like a lack of a protective system. You don't even have one, okay? Uh, Maybe you didn't inspect the trench and uh, you didn't inspect the protective system. Maybe the spoil pile is too close to the edge. OSHA has requirements on that. And also getting in and out can, if you don't have a ladder or a ramp, um, that can be, or if they're not efficient or effective in allowing you to get out, that can be a very serious problem. Now, another uh, issue here would be pulled into or caught in machinery and equipment. Now, every job site I was ever on, even when I got out of college, I worked in the construction industry uh, a bit, and there were a lot of moving and rotating parts uh, you know, that on these sites uh, that had to be guarded and de-energized. So make sure that those uh, are guarded or de-energized, or you're gonna have problems because you're getting pulled into that equipment, resulting in amputations, fractures and worse. And then finally on this uh, topic, being compressed or crushed between objects, like a semi-trailer and a dock wall, or how about a dump truck frame and then the hydraulic bed that is lowering? You can get crushed under heavy equipment that tips. I saw an aerial lift tip over one time, um, and that was not good. You can get pinned under. Uh, You do need to have a fall protection harness and be tied off, but that doesn't mean you still couldn't be thrown under the equipment. And now we're gonna move on to struck by, because uh, like I said, these two are a little confusing. The key here is a struck by injuries produced by a forcible contact between a a person and a piece of equipment. So I like to think about it, and I've seen this too, and I've actually um, had this happen to me, struck by a flying object. So you're running a piece, like a piece of equipment, and uh, something has been thrown or propelled across space and strikes uh, the worker. Maybe it's like a drill bit or something that separates from a tool, that type of thing. And then, of course, falling objects um, that is common. You know, things can fall out of a sling being lifted by a crane. Somebody can drop something from a scaffold and it can fall. Um, so, that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. And then, swinging objects, things that are mechanically lifted, and if you don't have a guide wire, or rope, uh, it can swing back and forth, hit people, wind can cause that. And then finally, struck by a rolling object, uh, that's something that's rolling or sliding on the same level. Maybe a barrel tips over, a uh, um, acetylene uh, cont- uh, tank comes loose and starts rolling. Those are the kind of things that we're talking about here. And then finally, electrocution, which, uh, I'm deadly, other than heights, being electrocuted is my one of my top fears. Now, this happens when a person's exposed to a lethal amount of energy, okay, electrical energy, and certain things can occur from that. Uh, you can be burned, okay, electrocution can occur, you can receive a shock, and then we deal with these arc flash, arc blast accidents, which are absolutely terrible, uh, fires, and explosions can result from uh, these electrical hazards. And you know, on construction sites, especially outside, we have problems with overhead and buried power lines. And they carry high voltages, so you really got to be careful, especially if you don't know they're there. The main risk really is electrocution, but burns and falls—if you fall from an elevation after you've been uh, received an electric shock. Uh, that occurs all the time. Uh, cranes are also not the only equipment that reaches overhead power lines. People walking with a long uh, pipe or whatever can actually, you know, make contact. And especially if you're in a, uh, on a ladder or a, a aerial lift or something suspended under or near power lines, then you've got a problem with that too. And then finally, before I turn it back over to Ray, I'm gonna talk about uh, extension and flexible cords on construction sites. So they're all over the place, you know, and these things get used every day that they can have damage to them. They can, you know, have cords with exposed wiring and these are all hazardous conditions. And then I've seen on construction sites, cords that weren't even the right type. They weren't hard usage. Uh, or they, in fact, have been modified. Sometimes they cut off that third grounding prong because it's bent or whatever. And these are all big issues. So what OSHAD has done here, because they recognize this, they require something called an assured equipment grounding conductor program. And this is something you have to have uh, for all cord sets and uh receptacles that aren't part of the permanent wiring of a building or structure. And you aren't typically going to have a permanent uh, wiring capability because you're on a construction site and you don't have that. So what OSHA does is they require a written description of the employer's program. And that has to have the specific procedures that are adopted uh, in that. And that of course has to be kept at the job site. The program has to outline specific procedures uh, for the required uh, inspections and tests. And it has to have a test schedule. You gotta record the test and you have to maintain it until it's replaced by the more current current record. And what really this amounts to is this equipment in this program has to be visually inspected for damage or defects before each day's use. Because one day it could be fine and the next day you could have a huge nick or something in it. And then of course, we're not gonna use any damage or defective equipment until it's repaired or just tossed in the garbage. So with that, I'm gonna turn it back over to Ray.
1: All right, good stuff, Mark. Um, Yeah, and if, you know, just a good tip that I would typically tell my workers, um, if you're doing these cord inspections on a quarterly basis and you have an Assured Grounding Program, you know, I would come up with some sort of scheme to remember the different color codes, maybe with the seasons. And I would go something like green grass for spring, um, white snow for winter, red hot summers, and orange for the changing fall leaves. But, you know, whatever you, whatever your program is, I would come up with some super easy way. So that way your workers, um, each quarter are shifting and color coding their courts. Um, so as promised, we were going to attempt to demystify some of the industrial hygiene issues that are common in the construction industry. I think it's important um, to start off with uh, perhaps a definition of what industrial hygiene is. Um, and it's really the science and it's it's really an art too that's uh, devoted to anticipating, we're recognizing, we're doing evaluating and controlling certain environmental factors Uh, or stresses um, that arise from your workplace, your job site. And these are things that are going to cause perhaps sickness, could um, impair your workers' health and well-being. We'll be talking about that. Um, Or maybe inducing some sort of significant discomfort um, to your workers, or even the community around your job site. Um, So, you know, nowadays you have industrial hygienists. Um, and or safety professionals, you know, who are continuing to wear multiple hats um, that are trying to do some sort of environmental monitoring. There's analytical um, analysis that's nowadays that's required. Um, We're putting forth engineering controls, certain work practice controls. Um, And so I've kind of gone through and looked at these four common issues, and we get a lot of questions centered around this. Um, But chemicals in your workplace, we'll talk about inclement weather, um, confined spaces and sampling and how they tie into um, some common industrial hygiene issues. Um, So we'll go ahead and start off with uh, chemicals. Um, Certainly construction activities uh, occurring, you're going to have some sort of chemicals um, on your project. Um, And we got to remember, there's lots of different hazards. You could have gases. You could have vapors. You could have fumes, dust, fibers, or even mist. And these are gonna cause perhaps some sort of health effect. And you could have workers uh, facing asphyxiation, maybe damage to body tissue or organs, uh, silicosis, or even cancer. So I tell folks that you should be starting off some sort of an evaluation uh, by looking at your safety data sheet. Um, You could have a situation where you have a chemical mixture. A lot of the technologies are evolving, and we're seeing that, you know, a lot of the chemicals nowadays have a blend, and you'll have several different chemicals that are blended into one mixture that have lots of different um, hazards. So again, look at your safety data sheets see what type of exposures your workers are gonna have. Also look at the chemical ingredients. So the safety data sheet is gonna tell you specifically what type of ingredients are gonna be inside of your mixture. And you wanna pay attention to the mixture ratios um, because once you identify what ingredients, you're gonna want to um, see if they're regulated by OSHA and see how what their permissible exposure limits are and what type of measures you have to take to protect your workers. So take, for example, it's a common one, uh, silica. And we know OSHA regulates it, um, but exposure is different when the silica is maybe encapsulated in a liquid. So maybe we have a painting contractor and um, you know we're putting down some paint that has some fumigated uh, silica in it when it's encapsulated in that paint, that wet liquid, um, there's far less exposure than if you were doing surface preparation and maybe were grinding on a concrete surface, exposing a lot of um, different uh, dust, silica dust inside of the air. And so you wanna understand all of that. You wanna understand where are your chemicals coming in from? What are my vapors, my fumes, my particulates? Um, and that's really gonna determine what type of sampling equipment is gonna be necessary. So that way you can determine the different kinds of respiratory exposures that your workers are gonna have. And we'll talk more about it after a couple of slides. Mark's actually gonna talk to us about some sampling equipment, cassettes, um, how to even validate your respiratory exposures. Um, Weather is uh, another big one, right? Um, we, We tend to work outdoors commonly when it comes to uh, construction, your workers are going to be facing hot, cold climates, um, certainly temperature extremes, um, hot, cold stresses. And we're going to have to have a way of monitoring all of that, um, you know, windy, cold or wet, wet environments. Um, typically, you know, if you've got workers um, uh, that are in outdoor settings, they're going to be exposed to these conditions. And I would tell my foremen and my crews that they need to pay attention to the weather. Um, not just the day of but you know typically you can get a 10-day forecast they're somewhat accurate um, but certainly understand what types of weather exposures we're going to have hot environments right Um, there's a uh, national emphasis program on heat stress and as we get into the warmer uh, months this is going to be an important topic for you to focus in on um, with your employees but remember that um, it's not just heat stress cold stress is also an issue, you know, I've worked in places, um, you know, like in Arizona, for example, you think it's just hot all the time. But early in the morning, um, when the uh, temperatures um, are still low, you could have 40, 50 degrees and cooler weather. And so it really all depends upon where your job is, and what type of stressors you have. Um, You're going to want to use some sort of monitoring equipment. Um, You know, there's lots of stuff out there. Uh, back in the day, it was just a thermometer, but there's all kinds of things. An anemometer you could use to uh, figure out what the, what the wind speed is. There's all sorts of apps that are available that are fairly accurate. Um, you could use a wet bulb globe monitor. Um, there's also lots of different types of PPE, and we'll be getting into those as well here later. And with that, Mark is going to take us to confined spaces.
2: Very good. Uh, please continue to send your questions questions and we're getting some really good ones here. All right. So a permit required confined space, also known as a permit space. There's certain criteria for that. It's got to be large enough for somebody to enter into it. Uh, It's got a restricted means for entry or exit, and it's not designed for continuous occupancy. Importantly, uh, it has a hazardous atmosphere or some other serious hazards. Now, before anybody can go into one of these spaces, the employer has to prepare a written permit that outlines all the hazards and how to control them. And if you've ever seen one of these, there's a lot of information in there that has to be followed. The entry supervisor is a person that is responsible for determining if acceptable conditions are present for entry, and then they actually authorize entry and they oversee the operations. And then they're also responsible for terminating entry. Typically a confined space uh, monitor is used uh, where uh, checking on conditions such as oxygen, LEL, H2S, and CO levels. So with one of these monitors, you can see it on the, Uh, slide there. The first thing we're going to do is test for oxygen because most of these gas meters are dependent on that and aren't going to work in a deficient oxygen deficient atmosphere. Next, we're going to test for flammable gases and vapors uh, because the threat of a fire or explosion is pretty uh, imminent and life-threatening. And then finally, we're going to test for toxic air contaminants. Now, non-permanent spaces, they don't have hazardous atmospheres, Uh, but remember the attendant is stationed outside one or more permit spaces to monitor these entrants and start a rescue operation if needed, and as Ray always says, the attendant job is not for a rookie or novice employee. It's somebody seasoned, okay? Uh, Talking about sampling, uh, personal sampling or area sampling, that's very necessary. You need that to verify workers' exposure levels. The the way OSHA goes about it, they tell you to make a reasonable estimate of exposure. This estimate needs to be validated by objective data. Maybe you're going to use a mathematical computation or by sampling. Uh, Sampling really is the most successful way to validate exposure. Now, let's talk about airborne contaminants, we got to control those. So we, one way to do it would be to have those operations in an enclosed area or in con, uh, confined in containments, Uh use general or local ventilation or the really the best way, which we can't always do is use less toxic materials as a substitute. Now, if these controls don't eliminate the risk wearing an appropriate respirator uh, has to be Uh, provided and done. And to determine what these respiratory exposures are, air sampling is necessary. So why do we do this? We need to know if there are any airborne hazards that are present, um, especially in closed spaces with limited access like a storage tank. Um, You're in a manhole, there's a tunnel or a ditch more than four, four feet deep. You have to do the sampling because you want to verify that exposure levels are low. You're going to use specific equipment to identify uh, if a hazardous atmosphere exists or could arise. So, you know, you can develop these proper procedures uh, and make sure acceptable entry conditions are established. The person that is in charge, of course, with this should not even have to be said, but they have to know how to use the equipment, they know, have to know how to calibrate it and use it. So when monitoring the air, always follow the manufacturer's instructions because some of these uh, little devices are different and you may think you know how to use it and you don't. Now, cassettes um, are then sent to the lab for analysis from the pump train. That's an analytical analysis. So when you get those results back, you can determine workers' exposure levels and I'll turn it back to Ray. So I can talk about the environment.
1: All right. Environmental stewardship. like to touch on this as well. Um, four main topics are going to be spills, silt fences, your protected areas, and certainly, <clears throat> excuse me, any excavations that you have. So spills, you want to make sure that you got some absorbent materials. So if you're spilling anything down, um, you know, we shouldn't be just kicking dirt over it. Um, it will uh, bubble up. It will still be visible. Um, The environmental thing to do is make sure that you got things like pillows, pads, sheets. There's tubes out there, all kinds of stuff. You could even use special pumps or vacuum equipment. The main goal here is is that you want to absorb the material, make sure that you're putting it in a sealed container of some sort, right? Um, And you're disposing of it properly. And there's lots of different local jurisdiction requirements on how to dispose. And so I would caution you that um, you uh, understand what those disposal requirements are. So with silt fences, this is pretty common, a landscape that you see on most construction job sites, but we're trying to protect some sort of protected water source, right? Maybe we have a body of water, maybe it's the storm water sewer system. Um, but we're trying to prevent runoff of sediment into that water source. Um, There's lots of cities and states that have particular requirements around um, certain inspection intervals, Um, but most definitely if you're on a project with silt fence, uh, you wanna make sure that you understand what are those intervals for inspections and it's, it's repaired properly in place and installed to protect those bodies or protected water sources. Um, again, these protected areas, most times, um, you know in my experience, they were identified in, in the contract. Um, and so you know th- there's going to be talks in your contract about water saturation, different species that could be in that protected area. Um, how much silt fence, where the silt fence has to be, who has to maintain it, um, and also good discussion about the storm water system, which will require additional permitting. Uh, again, aquatic life, um, you know there's going to be discussions on how to protect the aquatic life. Um, by all means, you want to make sure that you clean up your spills. We're not dumping chemicals, and we want to be again mindful of that storm water system. With excavations, um, pretty big topic on construction projects. Most require some sort of excavating. You got to have a competent person, and that person has to have the knowledge. Um, and the experience to identify hazards associated with your um, excavations and have the authority to correct those hazards that they see. You wanna have an emergency response plan. Um, I definitely recommend that you have some mock scenarios on how to get out of excavations the proper way. Um, Your spoil piles, Mark mentioned, right? Those could be hazardous. They could, if they're too close to the leading edge, we could have a cave-in situation you'll wanna make sure that you set up proper barricading. Um, If you have an excavation that's gonna be around for a long time uh, near a public way, you should probably use hard barricading. You can certainly use soft barricades, but typically they require a lot of housekeeping. Our ultimate goals are we wanna protect those cave-ins. We have all sorts of shoring or benching um, that we could do if our workers are inside. Trench box is another one. Um, And again, part of environmental stewardship is that dust suppression. We want to make sure that we're being good neighbors to those around us. And with that, uh, Mark, why don't you take us into some personal safety topics?
2: I certainly will. Thanks, Ray. All right, let's talk about wellness, uh, because we know how important this is for workers, uh, both on and off the job. So if you're taking care of yourself uh, off the job, Uh, you're going to perform better on the job. So what does this kind of thing uh, entail? It talks about, you know, proper nutrition, getting enough sleep. I know that's an issue for a lot of people, especially if they have younger kids like Ray, Um, and exercising regularly. Now, you think about working construction, it it can be pretty grueling, but, you know, the days that you're not working, you might want to just lay around and not do anything. Those are the days where you're going to do, you know, some stretching and flexibility work, maybe some some light strengthening exercises. So uh, it's a good way to handle stress too, uh, in my opinion. Uh, you, the ability to stay focused and work safely, uh, all these things lead to that uh, and that's going to prevent carelessness. And it's a proven fact that um, there'll be less on the job accidents. And then finally, mental fitness and emotional fitness, very important too. I don't think that was always a big um, recognized issue till a few years ago. And then, you know, back safety, very, very important because we're lifting things on job sites. I don't care what you're doing. You're going to have to lift things uh, at some point, maybe not every day, but Um, And then you have these twisting or flexing motions, and that's where I found that I've injured my back through the years. It's not just lifting something. It's twisting with it in your hands. So you're going to have issues with muscle damage, tendons, uh, ligaments. I have a problem with that. My right shoulder. uh, Nerves can be damaged. So, you know, these are painful disorders, and hopefully you don't need to have surgery. Uh, That's like the end all. So we use a lot of equipment on job sites to move objects, uh, but there are times you have to do it by hand. So you have to know how to lift to uh, prevent uh, injury. Next, we'll talk about material handling because uh, safe work practices that can make the difference between a life and death situation. Balls struck by crushing. I already talked about that. That's just a few dangers uh, that you're exposed to. Uh, So, with the use of heavy equipment, there are certain things you have to do. Uh, You have to know how to store, tie down, turn off, and secure all materials and equipment. And then, of course, when you're lifting, we're going to use handholds. That's if you got a handhold, you can lift pretty much anything. Finally, PPE. Um, you know, like I said, there's things that can fall off scaffolding, can hit you on the head or side of your head. Then of course, you're going to need to wear a hard hat. Almost every job site I've been on required a hard hat, no matter what, along with safety glasses and uh, safety footwear. So your hard hat's going to depend on if you need to have general protection, or maybe there's uh, exposure to shock, uh, you're going to need a class E hat. And, and always eye and face protection, you know, when I did grinding on job sites and stuff, if I didn't have a face shield, I was getting hit in the face with little particles. So uh, make sure you supply all those things for your uh, employees. And hearing protection, even if you're outside, uh, you really don't even think about that, but it's very, very important. All right. And then we talk about slips, trips, and falls. These things happen all the time. And, you know, a lot of times people don't even get hurt. They lose their footing. They just trip and fall or like the guy tripping on the slide here. So, you know, I'm a walkway specialist person. So I'm looking at all sorts of walkways and even on construction sites. So there's things you need to do wear footwear that's appropriate. Typically, you want clean and dry, but, of course, on a construction site, that may not be possible. Be aware of your surroundings. Um, Make sure you look ahead and aren't preoccupied thinking about something. Keep one hand on a handrail if you're going up and down stairs. And, again, keep a clear line of sight. So we're going to recap here and then take a couple questions. So... Uh, We talked about these things on the screen. I'm not going to go over it. I think uh, Ray did a great job with with his end. And Ray, I'll turn it back over to you.
1: All right. Thank you, Mark. And uh, now it's time for your questions. And if you haven't already sent yours in, please do that. Mark and I would like to also uh, thank our event sponsor, J.J. Keller Safety Management Suite. Um, With your complimentary access, you'll access all of our most popular safety management tools, including written safety plan templates, customizable training programs, audits, inspections, word-for-word federal regulations, state regulatory comparisons, and much, much more. Um, Go ahead and use the poll um, and let us know your interests, Um, and we'll go ahead and send you uh, our white paper, OSHA 101, and this will give you a general idea of what might be required from OSHA for all businesses, and with that, uh, let's get into Q&As.
0: Well, thank you so much to you both for this presentation. And before we start the Q&A, we wanna remind everyone of the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. And your input is important because it'll help us improve our future webcast. So let's get to some questions. Uh, First question, do OSHA requirements such as fall protection apply to uh, volunteers at nonprofits and or religious uh, construction sites?
1: So they don't uh, apply to volunteers only because they um, aren't employees, most contractors their programs will extend to um, volunteers, as far as the religious side of the fence, um, if you're a church, um, certainly not to um, the worship services, but if you have secular activities like um, school functions library those types of things, it could carry over to secular um, types of activities.
0: Um, Our next question, Uh, someone's asking about controls for nanotechnology in construction materials.
1: Yeah, and this is certainly where we're trying to enhance the construction materials. We've seen this with cement and concrete, steel, where we're trying to make it more durable, maybe self-healing. We're trying to purify the air better, more fire resistant. And really, if you look at the standard, depending upon what material you have, um, take, for instance, fire resistance, The standards do a pretty good job about um, having you go through these hierarchy of controls. And so maybe it's engineering controls, workplace controls, administrative controls, even PPE, like Mark was talking about. So this nanotechnology, um, it varies um, widely. So it really depends upon what you're facing. But I would gravitate towards the specific standard and see what controls are there for you. Well,
0: thank you, everyone. Uh, Unfortunately, we have run out of time. Uh, We'd like to thank our awesome presenters, Ray Chishti and Mark Stromey and the entire team from our sponsor, J.J. Keller, and of course, all of our listeners. Take care and have a safe day.